Nasa. So this morning we'll return to the meditative cultivation of compassion, the aspiration that we may all be free of suffering and its causes. And again with the aspiration to that, that wish be saturated by wisdom, by understanding. What looks very simple actually turns out to be very deep and subtle, having many layers, and that is, may we be free of suffering, starting there, let alone the causes of suffering. May we be free of suffering. In our modern society, I think generally most societies, but especially ours, uh, suffering is pretty much equated with what Buddhists call blatant suffering, obvious suffering. You're in pain, physical, physically you're in pain, mentally you're, you're miserable, happy, unhappy, and so on. And then, of course, the materialist pipe dream is, well, don't worry, it'll all be over anyway. And then that'll be that. In a way, again, I, w- I wish that could be true. In a way, only partly. But the problem is much worse. I mean, almost like infinitely worse than they imagine. And most of us imagine. That's just blatant suffering. And it certainly doesn't terminate at death. Wish it would. I wish it were that simple. Unfortunately. So there's that. And there's a second mode that we don't, that is very well known in Buddhism. All you good Lamrim students know it very well. That we don't even regard as suffering because it feels good. And how can something that feels good be suffering? Well, it's not suffering. Not suffering as, as we define it in English. Are you in pain? Are you miserable? The answer is no, I feel great. But the, the pleasure you're experiencing is saturated by attachment. It's mounted upon attachment. It's sustained with attachment. So it's basically like sitting on a... It's like a person who ste- steps on a landmine and hasn't lifted his foot. How do you feel? Great, I'm enjoying the meadow. <laughs> the weather too. In fact, I'm eating a sandwich here. They're just yummy. And as soon as I'm, I'm finished with it, I want to go off and buy another one and have a party with my friends. And he's really having a good time enjoying his sandwich and the pleasant day and the birds singing. And you're looking down at his foot where it just went click, click. And it's very hard to rejoice because you're thinking, yeah, but this isn't going to turn out well. And that's the way it is. That's the way, it, I mean, this is universally true. Wherever our sense of well-being, our sense of security, happiness, pleasure, and so forth is aroused by attachment, clinging and attachment, craving and attachment, and then sustained by it. It always turns out the same way, and we're always surprised. Ever so often, we're always surprised. Oh, how could that be? How could that be? The woman who I guess thought her husband was immortal, or somehow, you know, he would definitely live to the age of 90. He was already an older older man, but, but such a surprise. We get shocked so easily, you know, when tragedy strikes, when the unexpected happens. This is the grasping to impermanent phenomena being permanent. And so to understand that, to understand the gravity of it, the depth, the monumental nature of just that, of the, just the coarse suffering, seeing that it doesn't end, the bardo can be very, very troublesome, to put it mildly. And what comes after that, and after that, and after that, and after that. Dupan Ramachay, when he was when he'd commented that he can remember all of his past lives, and he said the great majority of them were in the lower realms. You know? Yeah. So maybe he was just maybe we have all been hanging out in the in the fortunate realm, but not likely. 
So there's a blatant suffering, there's a suffering of change. And it's not that change itself implies suffering or necessitates suffering, but insofar as our sense of well-being, security and so forth is sustained by attachment, then change is the enemy. Uh, things are going well, your health is good, your relationships are good, your job is secure, financially you're sound, you're living in a pleasant environment, good neighbors and so forth. All good, all hedonia. Oh, it's very nice, it's very good. But the only thing you can be certain of is it will change. And that's what we, won't, that's what we hope won't happen if we're attached you know, to our hedonic well-being. So, it's the time bomb waiting to happen, it's the foot waiting to lift, and then suddenly we're surprised and very unhappy. So if you can see, you know, see the three times, the past, present, and future, you know, if you look at that, then you can see, well, but this is already dukkha. You just don't know it. You just, your foot just stepped on a landmine, and you're not aware of that, but I am. And you're already in the pool of suffering. It hasn't dawned on you yet. It's like when the Titanic just first scraped the big iceberg. And it seemed like it was just like a scratch. You know? Like, oh, we'll get over that. And, and the party went on. We, you've all seen the Titanic, I'm sure. But the party went on and on and on, and then only slowly. And they're enjoying it. They're enjoying it, you know, being on this super, super you know, liner and so forth. But it always turns out poorly. And then the deepest one, this existential, pervasive existential suffering, uh, has to do... Well, it's just basically our, about our basic vulnerability to suffering. It's just that. Wherever we are, upper realms, lower realms, wherever we are, even if we're in the formless realm, uh, that's, still, that's still there. We're, we're not free. And that's what Gautama somehow realized at the, at the young age of 29. But of course he had enormous momentum coming into that life. So those three modes. Well, as we go into compassion, if the compassion is to be wise, uh, and if it's to be effective, it's actually going to free anyone from suffering and its causes. Then we need to go deep. We can't just you know, pull the weed from the top and leave the root there. Just too superficial. You feel better? You feel better? You know, uh, we're very, very keen on feeling better in our, in our society. P- people always have been, but we're just better at it than most. With all our technology, our drugs, our entertainments, our work, and so forth and so on. Our comforts. So, the compassion is may we be free of suffering, but it's really may we be free of all suffering. Otherwise, we're not free of suffering. When we read the media, and I do it on a regular basis, and we hear one more tragedy, it may stir the heart and some compassion may be aroused. Uh, and then we, after some time, the problem is sorted out. One way or another, it's not as urgent, as intense as it was. And then we kind of settle back. Okay, well then that's, that's over. And so compassion generally, just I think it's almost universally true, comes in spurts. We see somebody suffering, we read about it, we hear about it, and compassion comes up. And then that particular episode, like a wave on the ocean, it subsides, and then we go back into kind of neutral. So the compassion, like the suffering of suffering, is episodic. It comes and it goes. Whereas a person who has a deeper insight into the suffering of change, and, and then looks around and sees all, all those who are really enjoying samsara, they, you know, they're lucky, they're having some good fortune, but it's all saturated by attachment. Then, then the, compa- the compassion is much more constant. It's not simply episodic. You know, it's always there. As you see, as long as it's attachment, it never turns out well. It's only a matter of time. And if the insight is even deeper, 
We're talking about levels of wisdom and insight here. Then it's just universal, because all sentient beings are subject to suffering and for a very good, very good cause. And they will suffer until the cause is eradicated. And so the aspiration is, may we be free of suffering? Well, this is a nice short list. It's easily, easy to understand. But then to experience it, have real insight into each of these dimensions of suffering, that takes some, some serious meditation to look inward, to identify that for oneself. But then it says, may we be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. So when the Buddha first taught the Four Noble Truths, he said, here's the reality of suffering. Know it. And this means don't just look at the, the pond scum. Don't look at just the surface. Know it all the way up and all the way down. Because if you're to find liberation, you don't want to just pull the, pull the weed out from the top and leave all the root, root system in place. So here's the reality of suffering. And it would, I think, for the material, if it, give them, if, if it actually dawned on them, if one could actually show them, this is the scope of suffering, I think it would completely freak them out. Because they felt secure. I mean, bet, better the devil you do know than the one you don't. And they feel, okay, this is a really austere, dehumanizing, demeaning, kind of awful worldview, but at least I understand it. And at least it doesn't last too long, you know, human existence. So even if, you know, the universe is meaningless, biological evolution is meaningless, and I'm chemical scum, well, I can still have fun on occasion, and that's good, so let's have to try to have as much fun as possible. And then when it's no longer fun, well, I don't have to wait too long, I'll be dead. And then the problem, then the issue is solved, the problem's over. And to hold that as, you were, as, as, that your, as, your, as your navigation chart, to think this is how things really are, and navigate your life on that basis, oh, they're going to come some really nasty surprises. They'll be so bummed out. You know, really. I mean, we chuckle, and yet, poor, not chuckly stuff. Not chuckly stuff at all. Right? We, may we be free of suffering, and the causes of suffering. Well, again, we can keep it simple. Uh, it's Klesha and karma, in the second noble truth, here is the reality of the source of suffering, eradicated, the Buddha said. Karma and klesha. Karma, that is type of karma that is rooted in, that is imbued with delusion and very possibly other mental afflictions. Uh, but the root of the karma, of course, is the mental afflictions themselves, and the root mental afflictions are the familiar trio of hatred, attachment, and delusion. And I think we all experience those, some more vividly than others, some more intensely than others. But if your experience of hatred, that whole genre of contempt, anger, resentment, hostility, aggression, and so forth, if your experience is anything like mine, uh, or if it's very close to mine, I, I, can, I can say in complete honesty, I never enjoy it. I never enjoy it. I never enjoy being angry, irritated, upset, hostile, contemptuous, disgusted. Never enjoy it. Never enjoy. It never feels good. I never, ever do. Some people say they do. I think those are the people who enjoy Dorian. You know? <laughs> it's really disgusting and they enjoy it anyway. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, probably not. But some people say they enjoy it. But I, I have to say it's kind of a perverse pleasure. So I'm not speaking of any kind of virtuous perspective here, but I just know anger in that whole family. And they're just not good neighbors. They never are. A little bit is un- a little bit uncomfortable. Intense is really terrible. Uh, as the Buddha himself said, with respect to the five obscurations and the five, the five jhana factors, if, if he meant five matches five, then when your mind is overcome by ill will, you're sick. You're sick, your mind's sick. Remember? For hedonic fixation, okay, you're in debt. 
But when your mind is, is under the domination or in the grip of ill will, malevolence, you're sick. There's just no way it can give you a clean bill of health mentally. You're just not. Because this is not conducive to your well-being or anybody else's well-being, and it only creates further disturbance and only sows the seeds for further misery. So they're just kind of 100% sick all the way through. And so among the three poisons, in my experience, and my experience is quite superficial, but I'm kind of competent of what I have experienced, is that when I experience that, that poison, I'm experiencing blatant suffering. It just doesn't feel comfortable. It doesn't feel comfortable at all. Then when I experience craving, attachment, that's probably we'll do those two, craving and attachment, uh, as, we, as we know from the shamati teachings, its, its essence, kind of its root, is bliss, right? As the root of anger, hostility is luminosity, sharpness, intensity. Uh, the root of attachment, craving, is bliss. There's something going on here that I like, because either I've got it or I think I will get it, and therefore there's some pleasure in that. But the pleasure that comes with, or with which craving and attachment is imbued, that kind of pleasure, the pleasure of having gotten something and holding on to for dear life, of really craving something or someone or some place, what have you, the pleasure in that, that's like the pleasure of a really sweet poison. And when it's in your, in your mouth, it tastes really good. I want more, give me more. You know, it's only when it gets down to your, you know, into your gastrointestinal system, then, well, maybe that wasn't a good idea. And so, the pleasure that we experience when, it, when in the thralls of craving and attachment. That's the second truth. That's the second type of suffering. Suffering of change. It feels good, but you just don't see it yet. This is not going to turn out well, which means it's already got the seeds of blatant suffering in it. They just haven't germinated so you can see them yet. But if you could, I think you're very sensitive. If you really hone your attention, then you'll see it right in the present. It's not just in the future. See if this is true for you, because this is all experience. It's either false report or true report. But when you are experiencing some joy of craving or detachment, uh, see it when you really inspect closely your situation. Is there, or is there not, some element of anxiety? If there isn't, you're just not paying attention. Because the anxiety should be there if you're being at all realistic. Because if you're craving something you don't have yet, you haven't gotten, there's a real chance you won't get it. I mean, all kinds of chances you won't get it. So if you're, you're betting your life on, if you're banking on, investing yourself, this is what will make me happy. You may as well you know, look close and see, you know, if you're not anxious, you're, just, you're delusional. Because you may not get it, which means you're going to be really unhappy when you don't. And so you may as well be anxious, because that's a realistic response to your situation. Then imagine you do get it. Whatever it is, the object of attachment, you acquire it. If you're not feeling anxious, you're not paying attention. Because now it's absolutely certain. It wasn't certain whether you'd get it or not. But now that you've got it, one thing is certain. You're going to lose it. That's <laughs> just absolutely guaranteed. You know, As we, as Wenka used to say so frequently, when we're really attached to something, one of two things happens. As we're grasping to that entity, whatever it is, with attachment and craving, either it disappears or we disappear. No third option. And so, if you're not anxious, then you're just you're delusional. You're kind of you're in a stupor. You're just not aware of what's going on. It's unintelligent. So there's a correspondence there. 
is not to say that all blatant suffering stems from anger. It doesn't. But when but anger shows, it puts a card on the table as soon as it comes up. I'm making you miserable right now, and there's a lot more to come. Take that. You know? That's what anger's like. It's blatant suffering. And then attachment, if we personify it, is a bit craftier. Like, I've gotten something really, really good in store for you. Really good in store for you. And then they put, put them in the cards on the table, and you're shattered. You know, because you lose. You, you, you always lose. Right? But it was crafty. It had you going. It's like thinking the, the, the person who's betting very high on the, on, the, on the poker table is bluffing. And they keep on, and I'll say, oh boy, bet more, bet more, bet more. And then you bring out your three kings, and the person has a, you know, a royal flush. Oh. oh. That's why you betted so high. <laughs> oh. oh. The lower lip starts. <laughs> so there's some connection there, I think. And then the third one, if I ask, what is the cause of that dimension of suffering, this pervasive existential suffering? And we can look at it in two ways. They're very related, but each one is very meaningful. If we just go right down to the Pali Canon, it is that identification with our own body and mind. Like clinging to the identification with, the grasping, this is really mine. My body, my mind, my feelings, my, my, my. And as soon as that's there, that grasping onto I and mine, then you'll just be suffering. It'll be a, a quiet murmur, perhaps, but already to flare up. It's like a sleeping volcano. It's always there. It's always hot. But it's, it's always there. And it is a fundamental existential kind of dissatisfaction. And when you're more aware of it, it's in the sense of uneasiness, a restlessness, a discontent, knowing something's off and I need to do something about it, but I'm not quite sure what. Probably I should buy a new car. <laughs> or something. Something. Because this doesn't quite sit well. Something's it's kind of like you're seeing that sleeping volcano and a lot of smoke is coming out of the top. I wonder what that means. And so that's one level, polycanon level, very important, very practical. And then if we go to Prachampanamita level, and then we'll be finished. Uh, reification. Whenever we're reifying anything, not just your own body and mind, reifying anything at all, a chariots, other people, the environment, your possessions, anything at all, reality as a whole. As long as there's reification, this, of course, necessarily implies dualistic grasping, where you're reifying yourself, reifying other, the not-self, not reifying the separation or bifurcation between the two, and that just never turns out well. In the short term, it looks like it. We really get our hopes up, and then, whoops, didn't turn out well after all. And so that one's kind of neutral. It doesn't really feel good or bad if you're just reifying stuff. You know? uh, that by itself doesn't feel good or bad. It's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's neutral, but it is the final ground state of all the other mental afflictions, and it's the root of all three types of suffering. So, this guy's going to get serious. And compassion, the deeper our insight, Gyatrodhambaja emphasizes so much, because he would really just, you know, the seven years that I translated for him, he would so often tell his students to do something they didn't want to do. And that is, go back and reflect upon the four thoughts that turn the mind. Again and again, he said, this is why your practice hasn't really gotten off the ground yet. This is why you're still dissatisfied. This is why. This is why. Reflect upon the preciousness of human, this human life. Reflect upon impermanence and mortality. 
reflect upon the nature of suffering all the way up and all the way down, reflect upon the nature of karma and its consequences. And then, if you really get that, you will have brought about four revolutions in your view of reality. And then you'll be, then you'll be hooked. Then you'll see what they're really, just kind of like seeing it perfectly clear. There is no way to be free of suffering and the causes of suffering apart from dharma. It's not, it's not a sectarian statement like Buddha Dharma or Nyingma school or Mahayana Buddha. It's not that. It's dharma. Dharma is the only way to find happiness. And everything else misleading, misleading. So a final point, and that is, these sound really quite awful, suffering with all of its three dimensions and then these three underlying mental afflictions. Uh, Christians, for example, for a very long time, uh, they haven't really emphasized achieving freedom from suffering in this lifetime, freedom in heaven, in salvation. Uh, But when you look at Jesus, Jesus on the cross, they're not showing a person who's having a really nice day who's enjoying bliss, at least as far as they know, but a man who took, willingly took on suffering in order to bring about greater benefit. You know, the ultimate symbol of Donglen from the Buddha's perspective. So not much of an emphasis there, but more of an emphasis on uh, transforming suffering, learning from suffering, deepening one's compassion and so forth from suffering. So the Sermon on the Mount, for example, is just a marvelous lojong. I think it's the best Christian lojong that I've ever seen. Uh, but the notion of their, at least in this lifetime, not really seeking to be free of suffering, but accepting it, and then incorporating that, bringing that into one's spiritual practice. Uh, and so far, I won't, I won't give a, a Christian sermon here. I'm not up to it. Uh, but Lojong, of course, is extremely central to all of Mahayana Buddhism, all schools of Tibetan Buddhism. And there, as we all know, it's very much a matter of, and I'm going to shift my earlier translations, it's a matter of taking suffering onto the path, Rather than simply try to avoid it, or get over it, or ignore it, or anesthetize it, it's looking at suffering and said, you know, I can use you. My primary motivation, and if this isn't true, then you're kind of, you're screwed. But if your primary motivation is not that I can have a happy day every life and avoid all kinds of adversity, uh, but my primary motivation is to let my mind become dharma, you know, to give up all attachment to this life and let my mind become dharma. If that's actually not just lip service, but the actual motivation. Then, from that perspective, the commitment to eudaimonia, from that perspective, and it's indispensable, from that perspective, then you can look at suffering, all three, all three levels, and you can ask, you know, could I use that? Could I use that? It's like if you're out in the wilderness um, driving an old-fashioned locomotive, a steam engine, and you're maybe sometimes running out, of, running out of fuel. And then you see a bunch of big dead tree, maybe right on the tracks. Big dead tree. And the first thought is, oh no, I'm going to have to stop. This is going to be a big delay. But in the meantime, you know, you're almost out of coal. And then, then the thought, oh, wait a minute, how cool. I can chop that up and I can get to the next leg of the journey. I can take that onto my path. And so... That's a shift very deep and devout Christians. They're good at this. And very deep and devout Buddhists. They're good at this. And I'm sure others are as well. But actually adopting the suffering, not shirking from the suffering, not, not timid in the face of the suffering, but looking at it rather boldly and say, I can use you. Don't worry about, you know, it's not right to reuse people as if they're things. But we don't need to have any compassion for suffering. That's silly. Just kind of look at it and say, I can use you. 
I can use you. Can, you can be fuel on my path. Hop aboard. I'm going to torch you. And I'll move along the path. So this is way. It's without experiencing suffering, without having that, and of all, of all varieties. Um, well, when we look out on the world of sentient beings around us, they're experiencing all kinds of suffering. Every single one of them. Just in the human one, we get all of them. Let alone animals and so forth and so on. And so if one really is not understood, deeply experienced, recognized the nature of suffering on all levels, it's going to be very difficult to empathize. If you're having experience, like, you know, we paint with our own, we paint others with our own palette. How many people f- really feel compassion for those living in the lap of luxury, living in their, you know, incredibly opulent mansions in Beverly Hills or on their hundred-foot sailing yachts and enjoying the good life and they look so good and they're smiling so much. Who really feels compassion for them? You know, uh, who really feels compassion for the, those in ISIS or other terrorist groups or others who are really quite bent on bringing suffering into the world? The very notion of compassion for them seems like not needed. That's because there's no empathy. People of ISIS are so profoundly, absolutely different from me that I don't need to have any empathy for them because they're bad on that. That kind of thing, yeah. But if one can identify within one's mind stream, not that virulent eruption that manifests in the behavior of ISIS, but the underlying contempt, the arrogance, the resentment, the sense of hurt, sense of lack of fulfillment, the idealism that the world could be better, but it might be brutal getting there. Have we never experienced that? And so the empathy, this, when we experience suffering, not just wishing to be over, but looking at it closely and saying, I can use this. This will be my basis for empathy. Without empathy, there's no deep compassion. It's just a routine. Right? And then likewise, the final point is mental afflictions. If we didn't experience mental afflictions, if you just never had one, from the time you're born, you just kind of go through life with no craving, hostility, or, or delusion. And then you see pretty much everybody around you erupting, you know, like living in a leper colony. Everybody around you erupting in this weird, delusional, nonsensical, crazy, crazy eruptions of craving. You see what they're craving, and like, what? And then they get upset, what? And then they're grasping, I, me, mine, I, what? It would just kind of be like being in an exotic zoo. Like, wow, these people are weird. How did they get that way? Gee, I'm glad I'm not like them, you know? If you'd never experienced any of them at all, I think the world would just be almost incomprehensibly weird of a people's behavior. And you probably just want to escape from them, you know? Afraid it might be contagious. Wow, that made an impression. (laughs) So there it is, I'm finished. So let's go to the practice then. Let's go to the practice and see, we had a brief allusion to this, in Penjanamuchi's text of taking suffering onto the path and taking mental afflictions onto the path, not simply seeing them as obstacles or obscurations. Please find a comfortable posture.
with the motivation of wishing to free yourself and all other beings from suffering and its causes, settle your mind, body, speech, and mind in the natural states. Of course, for compassion to arise, authentically, there must be some sense that what we aspire for is possible. Some clear sense that freedom from suffering, all these levels of suffering, and their underlying causes, is actually possible. And the more that shifts away from simply an article of faith or optimism, or admiration of other beings who've achieved high states of realization, the more it comes from your own experience. Even on a relatively superficial level of settling into the substrate consciousness and experiencing bliss that is not stimulus-driven, serenity and quiet, the luminosity of your own awareness, let alone the deeper senses of well-being and joy, that come from inside. The more you taste this, then the more you see there really is hope. We're not defiled all the way down to the ground. No one is. Then there's hope. So for a little while, let's just settle the mind in its natural state, resting awareness in its own nature illuminating the space of the mind, whatever arises within it.
And in light of the reality that when all is said and done, suffering has no owner. And attend to those, including yourself, who are subject to the suffering of suffering, blatant suffering, physical and mental, here and now. With a sense of equality of self and other, realizing what is obviously true, others experience suffering just as we do. Attend to the world of, of sentient beings, generally or specifically, specific individuals or groups may come to mind, are experiencing right now blatant suffering. There are so many. Again, visualizing your Buddha nature as an orb of light at the heart, as before, with each in-breath. As you attend to the world of sentient beings, with each in-breath arouse the aspiration, may we all be free of suffering. Breath by breath, with each inhalation, imagine the darkness of suffering of the world, of this blatant suffering, being drawn into this orb of light at your heart, and being extinguished there without trace. Turn your attention to the subtler dimension of suffering, the suffering of change in your own personal history, in your own life, and the lives of others. And practice as before.
and see if you can identify this deepest dimension. It's subtle, but you may indeed have experienced it. This underlying sense, a constant sense of being ill at ease. that everyone in samsara is in the same ocean. Ocean of discontent. Never allowing us to rest. Never at ease. the aspiration, may we all be free. Then we turn to the causes of suffering most core, essential causes. So many things may or may not contribute to suffering, but these are the real culprits, the true source. And reflect upon times in your own life when you've been in the grip of the mental affliction of anger, hatred, contempt, the family. How you experienced it, and what were the consequences? When you express that to the world, how did it turn out? Like for myself, so for everyone else, everyone who experiences contempt, hatred, disdain, ill will, and so on. And seeing the blatant misery that goes along with this mental affliction, and seeing the possibility that we could be free, we could all be free. Arouse the aspiration that it may be so.
review in your own life stream. Periods, especially more intense periods when you've been in the grip of craving and attachment. With such hope that it will turn out well. Even a conviction. And then see where it led. Turn your attention outwards to all those around you. The world so intently focused on the pursuit of hedonic well-being, ever hopeful. Each in-breath arouse the aspiration, may we all be free, seeing that it is in fact possible, that there is another source of well-being and joy that is not fraught with suffering. With the eyes of wisdom turned to the, the root mental affliction of ignorance, of delusion. And seeing that since it is not rooted in reality, it's not intrinsic to our very identity, to our existence in the universe, there's a possibility of freedom. By knowing reality as it is, if each of us here has that capacity, then so do all sentient beings. With every in-breath arousing aspiration, may it be so.
envision the freedom. See the hope. And breath by breath, imagine yourself and all such beings, free from each of these dimensions of suffering, and free from each of these root poisons of the mind. Imagine each one to be free. Rest in the nature of awareness with no object.
many years ago when I was living in the home of Dr. Yeshu Denton. I remember very vividly one day as we were just looking out over the farms right next to McLeod Gunge and then the canyon, the mountains. He said, I look out there and everything that's there in this world of nature, everything there, I can make medicine out of it. Rocks, sand, leaves, bark, animal skins, bones. I can find a use for them and turn them into medicine. Interesting. I think he was being very literal. And so as we go into our post-meditative state, there's at least a possibility that between now and 4.30 when we reconvene, a mental affliction might come up. Never can tell. And of course we're troubled by them because by definition mental afflictions disturb the mind. If it doesn't disturb the mind, it's not a mental affliction, although the disturbance may be very subtle. It upsets the equilibrium of the mind. It distorts the mind. Mental afflictions do that. They do that generically. And so we just would wish they would go away. But they're not going away anytime soon. So then how can we take them onto the path, like looking at some poison, some natural poison out in nature? And saying, yep, that's poison, but I know how to prepare that. I know how to transmute that so that you know, that could be useful. I could transform that into medicine. So how, practically speaking, especially in the light of our Vipassana trajectory right now, when mental afflictions arise, and let's just focus on the three, how could that possibly be helpful? And I'll tell you, they can be very helpful. It's difficult, isn't it? When identifying exactly how do you apprehend an object? Are you apprehending the object as having merely nominal existence? Like, yeah, that, that cell phone's mine. Yeah, well, why do you ask? You know, really light. Such that if it suddenly is, it's gone, it's taken away, it's broken, you say, well, it happens. You know, no suffering. It happened. Of course it was going to happen. It just happened today instead of, you know, sometime later. Is it simply a nominal, just recognizing the nominal as nominal, the conventional as conventional, or are we reifying? It's not easy. It's not easy. Uh, but then we have this, this trick, or this insight, and that is it's an assertion, you can test it. Whenever a mental affliction arises that then therefore disturbs the mind, it's always rooted in revocation. It's always rooted in a misapprehension of reality, every single time. Jealousy, arrogance, contempt, you name it. Always rooted in a misapprehension of reality, and specifically, revocation, grasping onto the inherent existence of whatever we're attending to. And so, over the course of the day, keep watching the flow of the mind. The mind is not always equally disturbed. Sometimes it's relatively serene and undisturbed, and other times it's more disturbed, right? So on those occasions, those episodes, those episodes, when you see that you're upset, not only because of anger or irritation, but maybe upset by craving or jealousy or desire, attachment, or upset by a sense of I am, pride or arrogance, what have you. Whenever you see that the equilibrium of your mind has been lost, you note this introspectively. Soon you should note that. You kind of note it with a smile. Oh boy, an opportunity. You know? Oh, a mental affliction. Definitely a sign of mental affliction. And that's definitely a sign of reification. My mind's upset. Cool. What was mental affliction? Oh, there it is. Yeah, that wasn't too hard. And then where's the reification? Oh, that's reification. I get it. And that can help you in this crucial aspect of Vipassana. If you can't see these two different ways, if you can't distinguish between simply apprehending someone, like, oh, <coughs> there's this person, there's that person, and so forth, and so on, light, merely nominal. If you can't distinguish that between, and that and reification, then you will either as Roger Jackson translated, either there will be an over or an under-privation. You'll either be throwing out too much, 
like, okay, nobody exists anymore, or too little, you made just a little contrived objectification and flick that away, but the problem remains. So there you go. Keep on. This is prospective memory. It's very useful for dream yoga. Prospective memory. When you see mental affliction come up, when you see your mind is disturbed, trace it to mental affliction. It's there for sure. Identify it with kind of glee. Oh boy, I found it. You know. And then identify revocation. Cool, that's what it is. And then wake up. All good. Enjoy your day.